Well, good morning, Broadway family. It's great to be back with you. I, I wouldn't expect you to remember, but we were here, I think, about five years ago for a Mission Sunday. And at the kind invitation of your pastor, and Pastor Dan had been here only a few years. And so I got to know you then, and it's an honor to be back. Good to be with Pastor Dan and Erla, and I think you know what a fine pastor you have in Dan. He's respected his preaching around the country, and uh, would you like to just thank the Lord for your pastor? That's a good thing. And most importantly, uh, Sarah and Bethany also have great parents, and, and so I know you're proud of them as well. I want to bring you greetings on behalf of the Global Church of the Nazarene. You are a part of a very big family that God is growing around the world. 2.6 million people who are members who call themselves Nazarenes in 162 countries of the world. That means that as wonderful as Parkersburg is, uh, it's a lot bigger than Parkersburg. And, and th these are just very wonderful days in the Church of the Nazarene. Now, don't blame my gray hair on the Church of the Nazarene. Last time you saw me, my hair was probably a little bit darker. That was, and uh, sometimes people say, boy, you kind of look like the president. You know, when the president starts out in the first year of a term, after four years, do you remember how, how their hair kind of turns different colors and their face looks a little more wrinkled? Don't blame that on the church. I started turning gray when I was about 39 years old. The problem was my hair was coming in in, in patches, and I started to look like a Dalmatian. And, and so uh, I just decided for about 10 of those years, I was, or not quite 10, but I was, I was just going to act like it wasn't there. But it is there. And, and so um, it, it helps in Japan. Because in Japan, until your hair turns gray, nobody really respects you. So in, in, the, uh, in the twice I've been to Japan, I got a little more respect because of the gray hair. So that's a good thing. And I also want to just thank you for your 75 years that you're coming up, getting ready to celebrate. I know my colleague, Dr. Carla Sundberg, will be with you in October to celebrate that day. I wish we could be here. But that's, uh, that's, that's quite a, a benchmark for a church. The average Nazarene church, in fact, the average church anywhere in, in the world has a lifespan of about 40 years to 50 years, and that's, that's the life cycle. So if you hit 75 years and you're still flourishing, that means the Lord is with you, and it doesn't mean churches after 40 years can't still be alive and dynamic, but it does mean that you have to find new iterations of fitting into the context and where you live in order for that to happen. So 75 years, that's a big deal. And, and we're, we're very proud of, of how you're continuing to thrive and the way you're supporting the global mission. You've been very generous with the church over these years, and, and we're, we're extremely grateful for that. Thank you. I, I think you understand that when you read through the, the New Testament, that these books of the Bible just didn't drop out of the sky. They, the 66 books of the Bible, by the way, the Bible is not a book. The Bible is actually a compilation of 66 books, 
and both from the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and in the New Testament. And they all had context. Yes, they were inspired by God, of course. They're God-breathed. They're there to help us understand the nature and character of God and how God interacts with us as his creation. But, but they all have a specific context, including those parts of the Bible that we call the epistles or the letters from, from John and from Peter and most of all from the Apostle Paul. You remember that the Apostle Paul was not always an apostle and his name wasn't always Paul. He started out as a radical fundamentalist terrorist whose sole purpose in life was to try to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He was named Saul, and the, the very mention of Saul's name brought terror to, to the Christians of the first century because he was going around with a list of names on a piece of paper that he had gotten official permission from, from the the Sanhedrin to go around and to collect Christians and drag them, put them into prison, and at times even to have them executed. But something happened to him on the road to Damascus. He was confronted with the risen Christ, and it changed this radical fundamentalist terrorist into the most passionate and perhaps the finest missionary the church has ever known. He changed his name to Paul. And Paul lived in the Greco-Roman world, and and it's important to understand that, yes, it was Greek, but more importantly, it was part of the Roman Empire. Take, take the power of the United States today, globally and worldwide, and multiply it times 100. That would give you an understanding of the power of the Roman Empire. There, there was no other world power that even was a close second to the Roman Empire. And Rome and and and. Uh, the, the empire and, and Caesar worship, that, that permeated the society in which they lived. Not only that, it was a polytheistic culture where many gods were worshipped. And, and so imagine in the first century, there's a brand new baby religion that's being formed. It's called Christianity. And Paul is going around to these major Greco-Roman cities that were, that were key uh, cities for, for commerce and for culture. And he was going in and he was digging out baby churches. And they, they would be in cities that we would recognize, like Ephesus and Rome and Corinth and Galatia. And, but, but then he would leave this little baby group of Christians after they'd kind of been rooted a little bit and established, and then he would go away and he would correspond with them through letters. And we have those letters, about half of the New Testament are the letters that Paul was writing back and forth to those, to those little small groups of Christians in those massive cities that was permeated by the Roman Empire. That gives you a context for what we're about to read. We're gonna read from the book of Colossians, and, and I want you to be thinking in your mind, we don't even know, by the way, where Colossae was. That's how small this particular town was. We, we have some general ideas where it might have been located, but we can't even say for sure we know where that city existed. Now we know where Rome was. We know where Corinth was. We have no idea where Colossae was. So imagine a, a tiny group of Christians in this city that we really don't even know where it was, 
Paul writing these words, and I think addressing the question, how do you be the church in, in a world, in a culture that's, that's been acculturated with a different frame of mind? How do you be God's salt and light in a place that where you're very small and where the gospel is growing? That's what we're about to read in Colossians chapter 4. Would you stand with me, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word? How do you be a unified witness in the world? Beginning with verse 2. Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. So he doesn't say pray over your meals alone. You have to be devoted to prayer if you're going to be the church in a culture that is opposed to the church. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So apparently Paul is imprisoned at this very moment that he's writing these letters. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now look at this. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, in the way you act toward people who are outside the church. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we all say together, thanks be to God. Come, Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that inspired these words so long ago, would you make them fresh and real to us today, right here in Parkersburg, West Virginia? Thank you for these fine people, and I pray that your word would come alive for us in our context now. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. There's a very popular scholar who wrote a book called The Forgotten Ways. His name is Alan Hirsch, and, and, and he says that when he studies the the, the early church, that scholars that he's read say that there were around 25,000 Christians in 100 A.D. 25,000 Christians in 100 A.D. That, that's a pretty respectable number for a movement that began just 65 years you know, after the, re the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus ascended into heaven about 33 A.D., and now 100 A.D., 65 years later, 25,000. That's a pretty fair number. But how many Christians do you think there were, say, just before Constantine came on the scene? So now we're talking about A.D. 300, 300 310. 200 years later. Now, before you, before you answer that number, let me give you a couple of conditions that I think will help you to factor in your answer. Number one, you've got to remember that Christianity was an illegal religion throughout much of this period. So at best, they were tolerated, and at worst, they were persecuted and even killed. So that doesn't bode well for the church. 
Number two, they didn't have any church buildings like we know them today. Churches tended to be very small, converted homes. Many times they were people's homes, or they would meet outside somewhere. Number three, they didn't have Bibles like we have them today. They were still in the process of putting together the Bible with all of the, the canon was still being put together as we know it. And so they, they were literally taking these, these letters. Now, they had the Hebrew Bible, but, but they would take these letters that were written to specific churches, and they were just passing them around from church to church to church. That was their Bible. Number four, they didn't have primary institutions. They didn't have professional forms of ministry and leadership structure like, like we have today. And they didn't have all the extra stuff that we have. Like, they didn't have youth groups. They didn't have worship bands. They didn't have seminaries. They, they didn't have CLT training. Believe it or not, they didn't even have Facebook or Twitter. How can you be a church without social media? And number six, they actually made it kind of difficult to join the church. By, by the late second century, uh, aspiring converts had to undergo a significant uh, initiation period. They were called catechumens, and, and the, their training was very vigorous before they could even be baptized. They went through months and months and months of training. So it wasn't that easy just to say, hey, I, I, I'm in the church now. So keeping all of those factors in mind, how many Christians do you think there were just 200 years later, from 25,000, 200 years later, now in the Roman Empire, tell your neighbor the number that you think. How many Christians 200 years later? All right, you ready for this? 20 million. Anybody get close to that? Now, I don't know for sure if that's exactly right, but let's say that it's even close. From 25,000 Christians to 20 million in 200 years. Now, that, that's a staggering thought to me. How did the early church do that? How did they grow from being a relatively small movement to the most significant spiritual force in the Roman Empire in just two centuries? Here's how they did it. The early church and many of the modern movements even today, so you can't just say it doesn't happen today because it is happening today in places like China, in places in sub-Saharan Africa, in, in the Horn of Africa, in other places in South America. The church is growing at that rat rate of speed. And the reason they did and the reason we are is that these Christians had a built-in missional DNA. They had, they had a DNA strand that was being passed on from generation to, to generation that was so missionally focused that they believed that every single Christian, not just the pastors, not just the clergy, but that every single Christian was to be a part of God's mission in the world to reconcile, redeem, and restore it back to God's good plan. That every Christian, somebody say every, Every Christian is called by God, empowered by God, and sent by God to be a part of the mission of God. So the DNA, if it were to be here, would be to say, Pastor Dan is our spiritual shepherd, he's our leader, but we all carry the equal responsibility to be ambassadors for God in the world. That's called missional DNA. Now there's a phrase in the Latin called the Missio Dei, 
And that is a phrase that means the sending of God. And that's where we get our concept for missions. And it's really important we get that part right because what it means is that this whole initiative that we call the church, the church being not a, a building but the church being a people, that the whole motive of what we mean by Christian mission springs out of the heart of God. It springs out of the character of God. It springs out of the nature of who God is, that God is a missionary God. God is a, a missionary God who goes and who also sends. We are all on mission because all of us serve a missionary God. Every single Christian is called by God, empowered by God, and sent by God to be a part of God's mission in the world. Paul understood that. And he was part of the one who was embedding this DNA strand into the early church. And in this passage from Colossians, the Apostle Paul is now, is now writing to these, this small band of Christ followers about this very practical aspect of being missional in their world. Specifically, how were they going to be in relationship with and a faithful presence to those who were outside the faith. So he's telling us how to respond to outsiders. I use that phrase, a faithful presence, very intentionally because I came across it in a book I read a few years ago by James Hunter. It was called To Change the World. And this is a book that is written about how cultures get transformed. And what Hunter argues for, and, and I, I think I agree with what he's saying, but he says that the way Christians have often tried to transform culture, especially right now in the Western world, and how we've tried to change the people around us has been through the pursuit of power and control. So the idea, he says, has been this. If we can just get enough Christians voted in, if we, if we can just get enough Christians in powerful positions of influence and authority, that, that that's how we're going to change the religious and the political and the social climate of our culture to a Christian way of thinking. We just have to vote right and get judges in and those kinds of things. Now, I, I, I think that's still a good idea. But Hunter says in this book that the desire for influence and change is noble but that sometimes our methods actually compromise our message. Because whenever Christians use coercion and power and control to try and bring the kingdom of God and institute Christian values into our society, that we are in danger of actually compromising the whole gospel message in the process. And so what Hunter suggests is that we should enter into circles of power. We, we should get people into places of influence, but that we should try to do it in ways that are loving and serving instead of dominating and controlling. And that the very witness of our, our faithful presence of just showing up consistently and frequently in Christ-like ways and being true to our calling in the midst of the sin and the brokenness and despair of our world, that ultimately our leavening presence will eventually begin to change the world. And then 
if you think about it, it's actually a biblical concept. Because you remember whenever Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, think about the images that he used. Think about the metaphors Jesus used to try to help us understand how the kingdom comes. He talked about mustard seeds. He talked about leaven. He talked about salt. He talked about light. Mustard seeds were the smallest known seed of the ancient world. It was a tiny seed that produced a really, really big tree. Leaven is the little tiny stuff that you put in bread to help the bread rise. Salt was a, just a little bit of salt could preserve great portions of meat. So what Jesus was trying to say is that's the way the kingdom is. The kingdom doesn't start out being blown up and trying to go powerful and be coercive. and That's kind of how the disciples wanted him to change the world. They wanted him to raise up an army. There was actually a group of people called zealots who that was their main passion was, let's bring in the kingdom of God by taking over the Roman Empire. That didn't work out very well. And Jesus said that's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom works small. And it, and it begins to gradually permeate and influence until finally it begins, it begins to overcome all of the darkness in the world. Now notice what Paul says when he's talking to this little group of Christians in, Col in Colossae about how you respond to people who are outside the faith. He says, first of all, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Don't be foolish. Don't don't go out there and make a fool out of yourself. And what did he mean by, by the outsiders? Who were the outsiders in the first century? See, historically, religious people, and I'm not just talking about Christianity, but religious people historically have tended to ostracize the very ones that we're trying to reach out to. And so we separated ourselves from non-Christians and we, and we, instead of infiltrating where non-Christians are, that, and that's completely opposed to missional DNA. We don't separate ourselves. We separate ourselves from a worldly way of thinking, but we don't separate ourselves from worldly people because that's a part of the mission of God. And I think that's why Paul says you've got to be wise in how you interact with people who are outside the faith. And then he gives some really practical advice as to how that's supposed to look. He says, let your conversations be always full of grace and seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. What an interesting choice of words. Let your conversation the ways you speak to people who are not Christians, let, let those conversations be always, someone say always, be full of grace and seasoned with, with salt. I want you to think about this choice of words. And I want you to think about the order that Paul puts them in. I, I don't think the Apostle Paul ever wrote a single word that he didn't mean to write in exactly the order he meant to write it. I mean, he was a trained theologian who, who was a, a Pharisee at, in the beginning who later became somebody who was a great theological writer. So he did all of this stuff very intentionally. Look at what he says. You're supposed to be full of grace. 
What does full mean? Well, let's just get really simple. Full means to the top. It means to be overflowing, if you will. When something is full, it means there's no room for anything else than what is already there. If I have a full glass of Coke, that means there's no room for any more in it. Why? Because it's already full to the top. And Paul says, I want you to be full of something too. What is it? I want you to be full of grace. Let the way that you speak and interact with outsiders be overflowing to the brim with undeserved kindness and gentleness, generosity, and love. It doesn't sound like Facebook to me. Be full of grace. And then, this is really intentional, and then season with salt. Season. Now, I happen to like salt. I assume you do too. Salt is awesome as seasoning. It makes your food taste better. But how many of you know that too much salt is never good? Too much salt takes the natural taste out of your food. If you don't believe me, when you go to lunch today, take your salt shaker, pull the cap off, and dump it all in your food and see what it tastes like. A little bit of salt goes a long way. Now, you use salt in moderation, and, and it works. But too much salt, if you make it the main course, it's going to ruin the whole meal because salt is for seasoning. So what's Paul trying to say here? When you're dealing with those who are outside the faith, I want you to be full to overflowing with grace, and then I want you to season with salt. Be full of overflowing kindness and humility and service and generosity and love. Just be overflowing with that and then season that grace with the truth of what you stand for. But listen, you can't turn that equation around and expect it to be good. You can't be full of salt and then season with grace a little bit here and there. Because when you do, guess what? The message is going to taste bitter. It's not going to taste good. If you're full of salt and you season with grace, here's what people are going to do. Blech. And you may be making your point, but you will not make a difference. You know, we Christians, me included, we are notorious for making our point. We're very clear about what we're against. <laughs> we're very clear about what we think is bad when lifestyle choices are wrong and what needs to be changed. And I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I, I'm probably guilty of that myself. In other words, I'm pretty good at the salt thing. We, we know how to pick it. We know how to put, put things on billboards. We know how to blog our convictions. We know how to lobby for change. We certainly know how to put stuff on Facebook. We're exceptional at making our point. Congratulations. But those tactics 
break down when they start to communicate things like this. We don't like what you do, and we don't particularly like you either. That's called making your point, but it's not making a difference. In fact, that's what the Pharisees did with the outsiders of their faith. Pharisees sometimes get a bad rap in the Bible when we read about them, and we're always against the Pharisees, but did you know they were the best people in that society? They were actually the good guys. They were the guys who were trying to preserve the law. They were the guys who were trying to uphold righteousness. And, well, you could say it this way. The Pharisees kind of represented the holiness people. But the problem was Jesus, Jesus never questioned their passion for holiness. What he questioned was, was the spirit of their holiness. Because they were always going around trying to make a point, but they weren't really making a difference. They weren't helping change people's lives. How do we make a difference? Paul says it right here. It's not rocket science. We are to be full of grace, and we are to then season with salt. There's still a point to be made. I'm not trying to say we don't make our point. We still have to tell the truth. We, still, we don't compromise. But when you add a holy, loving, generous, forgiving life, that's overflowing with grace into that equation, then the truth begins to seem beautiful instead of bitter. It's life-giving instead of life-taking. And just in case you thought, well, maybe the, the Apostle Paul, maybe he was just a little bit, you know, going overboard. Well, let me tell you what the Apostle Peter said. So Peter, Peter's the guy who walked with Jesus all those years. Look at what he says in 1 Peter chapter 3. This is the first letter that Peter wrote to the church. Chapter 3, verse 15. And li listen to how similar it is to what we just read from the Apostle Paul. He said, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared. But he says, Do this with harshness and a critical spirit. No, that's not what he says. I'm just kidding. He says, but when you give your answer, listen to the words he chose. Do it with gentleness and do it with respect. That sounds an awful lot like what the Apostle Paul just said. Do you remember October 2nd, 2006? I wouldn't expect you to remember the date until you remembered what happened on that day. But it was the day that a very confused and troubled milkman named Charles Roberts walked into an Amish schoolhouse in Pennsylvania. He dismissed all but ten of the young girls, and then he brutally shot all ten of them before he shot himself. And five of those little girls died, and five of them survived. You remember that day? It was a terrible, awful day that shocked our country. But not only was it terrible for the Amish community, but maybe you didn't know this part, but Roberts left behind his wife, Murray, and their two young children. The following Saturday after the shooting was Robert's funeral. 
And something really amazing happened that day. Because Amish families from all over the country came filing in to support Marie and her two children. 75% of the people at the funeral that day were the Amish. And they stood alongside Marie as she grieved in her shame. And they offered forgiveness for what Roberts had done to them. And they embraced his family. And they loved on those two kids even though they had lost five of theirs. And then, I don't know if you remember this part, but they proceeded to find ways to even support Marie and those two children after the funeral. And the world was in shock again, only this time it wasn't because of the disaster. This time it was because of their response. It was because the world had rarely seen that kind of love and that kind of forgiveness. Now listen. I don't know any group in the Christian faith in America who knows how to make their point better than the Amish do. Would you agree with that? You know who the Amish are. They dress like Amish. They, they ride around in buggies like Amish people. They know how to make their point. But they also are full of grace. And they season with salt. And so they know how to make a difference. I think that's called being a faithful presence. And I think that's what Paul was trying to say, and I think that's what Peter was trying to say. If we as Christians in a postmodern and very secular world, if we want to do more than make a point, if we want to make a difference, especially to those outside of our faith, then our lives have to be full of grace. And we have to then season with salt. And so I want your general superintendent to hear, to, to, to hear me say to you, I want you to go overboard. Go overboard with grace. I want you to go overboard with acceptance instead of judgment. Go overboard with love instead of indignance. Go overboard with grace instead of condemnation. And if you will, that's how you're going to make a point but still make a difference in your next 75 years. People will still know that you have a point to make. But this is the heart of what it means to be connecting with people who are outsiders. That we are a body of believers who love their neighbors so much, they want to know why. Why would you do that? It was back in uh, 2002, and I had a chance to go for the very first time to Russia. Volgograd, Russia, and Moscow, Russia. And I got to see the Nazarene Church in action. This was the early beginnings of the Church of the Nazarene in Russia. In fact, Chuck and Carla Sundberg were some of our founding missionaries who helped start our work in Russia. And at the time, back in 2002, most of the Nazarene churches that were there, they were being led by really young Christians. Most of the church was, 
they were in their early 20s, and some of them were even in their teens. And they were dynamic, and they were visionary, and they were fearless. I mean, they were absolutely fearless. They were constantly being watched by the government, and it wasn't uncommon for the KGB to just show up at one of their services. Their churches were being vandalized. It wasn't uncommon for material goods to be stolen and, and graffitied. But, but in the midst of all of that, they were, they were a faithful presence. They were full of grace, and they were seasoning with salt. And as, as long as I live, I think... I will never forget what happened after a Sunday morning service. I preached that morning. There was about 60 people in Volgograd First Church of the Nazarene. And then the entire church went down to the Volga River for a baptism. And you need to know something about the Volga River. It's, it's a big river. It, it is a busy place. And especially on the weekend, everybody had gone to the river to relax and play and there were people everywhere. They were swimming, they were boating, they were having picnics, they were playing volleyball and whatever it is, else it is that Russians do at the river. And this little church of Nazarenes, they found a spot right there on the shoreline, and then they got ready for the service, and everybody huddled in a circle, and, and the 60-some of us held hands, and we prayed, and we said, Jesus, come and be with us. And then one of those young Nazarenes, he started to play guitar. And then we sang songs right there on the beach until the candidates who were going to be baptized, about seven of them, got ready. And then the pastor of the church waded out into the river, and I came out with her, and we got up right there, about water up to our chest. And then they put strings of flowers to provide a path floating for for those candidates to walk in and then one by one those baptism candidates they came walking into the water they were wearing white robes and every time they walked into the water that little band of Nazarene Christians were, were singing it's an amazing sight but it was so public and I'll never forget what happened next didn't take very long for a, more of a crowd together Pretty soon, it wasn't just a little crowd. It was a large crowd, and, and that's when the chanting began. I was in the water, and I could hear jeering. I could hear mocking. I'd never had that happen before in America. And then the crowd started getting angry. People started throwing things at us. Fruit, eggs, some rocks. I got scared. But to my amazement, those young Nazarene Christians, they were like they were unfazed. They smiled at the people. They were gracious to them. They never retaliated. They, they didn't say, watch it. And they were an example to me of what it means to be full of grace and seasoning with salt. And trust me, they were making their point. They were a faithful presence in the midst of all of that hostility. And listen, while a lot of those people, probably most of them, didn't get what was going on, I also watched this, that because of the response of those young Nazarene Christians who didn't fight back and who kept loving and smiling and, and seasoning with salt, 
there was a group of about 10 people who stayed to the end and they said, tell us what's going on here. We're, we're intrigued by what we see. And, and they stayed to get to know these very odd, yet very loving and kind and generous people who were overflowing with grace and who were seasoning with salt. They were a faithful presence. I, I think that's a part of the secret today of what it means for us to, to be a, a, a salt and a light and a leaven and a mustard seed right here in the midst of the culture that we live in. I think the next 75 years for Broadway Church is going to look like this. I think it's going to look like a group of people who are full of grace and who are seasoning with salt, but who are filled to the brim with so much love and faithfulness and generosity and kindness and humility that they always have something to say, but they say it with so much love that it compels the people who, who want to disbelieve into seeing something different. I want you to make a point. But let's follow the instruction of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. Let's keep being the church, but let's be the church that is full of grace and seasoned with salt. Let's say it one more time. Let's be full of and let's season with salt. Lord, I thank you for the last 75 years of this church being a faithful presence, being a witness, a unified witness in the culture of Parkersburg, West Virginia. Many lives have been changed because of that. And I pray that their greatest fruitfulness and effectiveness are yet to come. May the best days of the church be still ahead. Because, Lord, we believe that this, this is still the way the church grows in the midst of a society that doesn't love the church. Lord, I pray that the same missional DNA that caused that early church to go from 25,000 to 20 million in 200 years, may it be so also here in the, in the country that we love and in this state and the city that we love. Bless Pastor Dan. Bless these church board leaders. Bless every person that's a part of this faithful church. And we pray that they would continue to make a difference in their world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.